They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let me open in prayer for us. Father, thank you for the power of your word. It is truth. It is truth then, it's truth for us today, it does not change. And I'm just asking you, Father, as we look into your truth, I ask you, Lord God, that we would discover some truths about us and about you and about this resurrection of this Jesus. And that, Father, your truth would set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here's the thing. If you have had opportunity to read the Synoptic Gospels, which would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are called commonly the Synoptic Gospels. That is, they, have the, they, they share the stories of Jesus from a similar or same perspective. Those Gospels talk about Mary Magdalene that we read about here, along with other ladies going to the tomb. They see the stone rolled away. These ladies go inside as they're wondering where this body of Jesus is, suddenly two angels appear to them, one on each side, and they say to these ladies, why are you looking for the living among the dead? This Jesus whom you are seeking is no longer here, but he is risen from the dead. Now go tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee. And off they run, and Matthew tells us, afraid yet filled with joy. And yet the story that we get from Mary Magdalene here when she talks to John and to Peter is no vision of angels, but it's this. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now let me help us reconcile this a little bit because that actually sets us up to understand more fully the story here. Apparently, Mary Magdalene leaves for the tomb. On the way, other ladies, disciples of Jesus, join her. When Mary leaves, it's dark, apparently according to the other Gospels. By the time they arrive, the sun is risen, 
and they see that, a, that the stone in front of the tomb has been rolled away. They approach the tomb, and Mary Magdalene realizes someone has been fooling with Jesus' tomb. Apparently, some of the others bend down, look inside, and Mary Magdalene hears what they are saying, that Jesus is not in the tomb. Based on that information, and the stone rolled away, she hightails it to the, to the disciples, specifically the 12 apostles of Jesus, now 11, of course, you know about Judas, and tells specifically Peter and John, they've taken the body of the Lord, and we don't know where he is. Meanwhile, while the ladies are in the tomb talking, that's when the angels appear. So Mary has no recollection. She, she is not aware of that story, at least at this point. So Peter and John hear of this. What do you mean they've taken Jesus' body? And they head to the tomb running. And when they get in, they look in, they go in, and Jesus' body is nowhere. His clothes, the strips of cloth, the burial strips of cloth wrapped around his body are laid aside and the head napkin, the burial cloth, is actually folded up aside from it. And it says that John believed. Now, let me just encourage you, when it says John believed, it's not that he believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but rather he had believed Mary Magdalene's story, that Jesus' body was no longer there. Now, confused, Peter and John leave. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene is outside the tomb, and she is weeping. And I, I want to ask this question, and it's not the main question I'm going to ask. I'm going to get to that one. But why do you suppose Mary Magdalene is weeping? And guys, don't say, well, it's because she's a woman. That's not the answer. But let's understand, Luke tells us in chapter 8 that she was one of the several women who had been following Jesus in his ministry, and Jesus had actually cast out seven demons from her. Now, we know that according to the Gospels, demons torment people, can actually cause physical problems. And when you have multiple demons, it's apparent that there is a sin issue. So here is a woman who is bound up in, a, in serious sin issues, tormented by these demons, one of which may well have been something like bitterness, but tormented by these demons. And when she hears the good news that Jesus is preaching, Jesus heals her and casts out these demons, and she is freed. And this weight of sin that had been burdening her has been lifted from her shoulders, and she is no longer tormented by these demons. Now that is a testimony. That is a powerful testimony of the authority and the power that Jesus has. He didn't just teach with authority. He performed miracles with authority. What an awesome testimony. What freedom she has now. This Jesus, that she, not just she, but the others supposed was going to be the Messiah. He's going to come up, and as Juliana was pointing out in her skit here, they, they supposed he was going to come. He was going to overthrow the Roman government. He was going to spread world peace. A golden age would settle in, and all that's wrong in the world would be made right. And yet, when he goes into Jerusalem on what 
we call Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, assuming the posture of a king, Matthew and Luke tell us, he does not set up a kingdom. In fact, he doesn't even march straight to the palace. He goes to the temple. He preaches. He actually does some miracles through that week. And yet, Thursday evening, while he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, something extremely tragic happens. The Mary Magdalene finds out that he is arrested, falsely accused, and the very next morning he is sentenced to death. So for her, it, you know, it was enough that he was falsely accused and crucified for things that he didn't do, but now they've come and whoever has taken his body away, and this disillusionment has now turned to deep remorse. And she is found outside Jesus' tomb weeping. So I think this is why she is weeping. What a powerful... She has been touched by the power of Jesus Christ. And she's been set free. And the torment and the pain that she had been experiencing, she's been freed from it. And now the nerve to not just crucify him unjustly, but also for them to steal his body. And so here we see, she's standing outside the tomb weeping. And she bends down to look inside, expecting to see exactly what the other two, Peter and John, had seen, an empty tomb with burial clothes and the burial cloth. But she sees more, doesn't she? She actually sees two angels. Now, she may not have recognized them as angels at the moment, and they ask her a question. Woman, why are you crying? So here's my question. Are you ready? Peter and John are two of the most prominent apostles, followers, disciples of Jesus. The angels choose to appear to the women when they go into the tomb and to Mary Magdalene when she looks into the tomb, but does not when Peter and John go into the tomb. And John, according to the Gospels, is Jesus' best friend. Now, I believe this isn't just a trivial question. Why does God choose to have angels, not just angels, but Jesus himself appear to the women, but not to the men? Now, I think there are two reasons for this. I'm going to choose to focus on the second one, but I do want to spend a little bit of time on, on the first reason. And the answer to this question, why do the angels appear to Mary Magdalene and the other women and not to Peter and John, especially when John is Jesus' best friend? It is not because <coughs> excuse me, these women are overcome with grief and they, they hallucinate. They're hysterical. Modern science has clearly demonstrated 
No two people can dream the same dreams together or hallucinate the same things together. I don't care what good drugs you are on, you cannot hallucinate the same thing together. And so for them to be hallucinating out of hysteria is, is not the answer. Now, to give my first reason, I'm going to back up a little bit. <laughs> we live in a day in which the accusation that these four stories by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are legend, this accusation has grown in tremendous prominence just in the last few generations. Not so much so in the past, though it was always there. But people always had to have reasons for disbelieving the resurrection of Jesus. Because if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that would be the greatest miracle ever. And what are you going to do with that? You would end up coming to the conclusion that whatever Jesus did and said must be true. We've never seen someone rise from the dead. And so people, skeptics, have tried to excuse the resurrection of Jesus and somehow discredit the Gospels that somehow they are not historically reliable. Now I'm getting to my reason in just a moment. <laughs> and so the question then, are these Gospels really reliable or are they legend? If you're familiar with a, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, uh, he wrote Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the Space Trilogy, and the like. He lived in the 1900s. He was a, an awesome professor at, Har at Oxford in England with J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. He was an atheist at one point. He became a Christian due to J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, witness to him. But he was a literary critic. Now, I'm saying this because he would, in his classes, teach the earmarks of what legend looks like. This is C.S. comment concerning the Gospels. He says this very bluntly, the Gospels do not even read like legend. They don't read like legend. And again, if they are not legend, then they must be historically reliable. But why aren't they? You see, when you make up a story, you want to make it as believable as possible, don't you? About 100 to 200 years later, after the Gospels were written, you have the appearance of what's commonly called the Gnostic Gospels, and they are legend. Very fanciful miracles. Miracles are done with no purpose but simply to kind of wow the crowd. And legend has certain earmarks. Now let me then answer this question. If you're selling a story like the resurrection of Jesus, you want, the, you want people to grasp a hold of it and believe it and say, wow, that is incredible. Believe what you say. This is what you would not want to do in first century Jerusalem. You would not want to have Jesus appear first to women. In Jewish culture, Women were not credible witnesses. And so C.S. Lewis, from the get-go, says one of the, th one of the things that impacts him is that the resurrection of G Jesus' appearances were first, to, were first to women. That doesn't sell very well. That doesn't say, read me, believe me. But instead, we would have to say, it's there, 
Because that's what actually happened. Jesus did appear to the women first. And so that's that's one of the reasons why I think Jesus chose to do this. He wanted to do something that would appear incredible to make his story credible. People would be able to read it and say, wow, if I were trying to sell a story, I wouldn't tell it like that unless it actually happened that way. There's a couple other things that people have tossed out there. I'm not going to spend too much time on. But another earmark of something that you can tell is not legend is the presence of incidental details. Like when that Peter, or rather John, outruns Peter. So is that because Peter is overweight and hadn't been going to the Y lately? Is that because John was a lot younger than him? and was a skinny, tiny guy. Then it says that when they get there, when John gets there, he bends over and looks in to see an empty tomb. And then Peter does the same thing and bolts right in. That's bold Peter for you. I'm not going to hesitate. What are you doing standing out here, man? If the body's missing, let's go inside and let's investigate. Get out your magnifying glass. We're going to discover clues type of thing. And so he just boldly goes right inside. Now, by the way, when I say incidental details, it is interesting that when a wealthy man has a tomb and and, and Joseph of Arimathea was the wealthy man that took Jesus' body and put it in his own tomb. A wealthy tomb is not a tomb that when the stone is rolled away, you can just walk into. You have to bend down and go in this way. You can check that detail out. And these incidental details actually lend authenticity. See, a legend doesn't focus on incidental details. They don't sell the story very well. Another thing, the flaws of the apostles are freely uncovered. You don't find in a legend your main, your second main hero, Peter, denying the main hero three times. You don't see that. It really discredits him, especially if he's one of the, the strongest leaders in this burgeoning, fledgling church. And then, in the very same chapter of John, to have another one of Jesus' apostles doubt. We call him Doubting Thomas. He reveals the character flaws of the apostles. That doesn't sell well. And then lastly, and I say lastly not because this is the last one, but because it's the last one I'm going to treat. There are many other earmarks of legend as opposed to history. And the important hard sayings of Jesus and significant details are left unexplained. For example, he shares the strips of cloth being bundled up, set aside, but the, what's commonly called the head napkin or burial cloth is folded up. To the other. Now, if I were John, I would want to jump in and say, well, let me tell you why this is significant, okay? And Mary put it, maybe put it in parentheses. Here's why I'm sharing that detail with you, because if this body were actually stolen, what thief overcoming the four Roman soldiers there at the tomb would then go in, strip off the dead person's clothes and take the time to do that. And then, guys, guys, before we leave, let's kind of tidy up here a little bit. Let me, let me just help me out here with this burial cloth, fold it up and set it neatly next to it. You're not going to do that. You're going to say, guys, let's just grab this body and get out of here. For whatever reason, you would want to steal a, a 
corpse. But that is the story that got passed on about Jesus' body. He didn't rise from that. He was just stolen. But John does not take the time to explain that. And so C.S. Lewis comes to this very strong conclusion. A very intelligent man, as I say, was an atheist, became a Christian, wrote books like Mere Christianity, uh, was a philosopher, an apologist, a theologian, uh, a radio personality, an incredible, articulate, intelligent man. He says the Gospels do not read like legends. They are so believable. And maybe this is why Jesus appears to Mary first, and not Peter, and not his best friend John. But I think that's secondary. And what I want to do is now I want to take a few minutes and explain why I think that Jesus appeared to, Mark tells us in chapter 16, verse 10, Mary, out of whom seven demons were cast, was the first one to see the resurrected Christ. I want you, because here's the clue, to answer this question. Look in your Bibles. And what question do the angels ask Mary? And what question does Jesus ask Mary? Because they are the same question. Woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Matthew tells us that the women, when they left the tomb and had seen the angels, were afraid, yet filled with joy. Mary here is weeping. There is strong, intense emotion that's involved here. I'm going to, from, to describe Mary's emotion, I'm going to use the term brokenhearted. For me, as I've been fumbling through what type of emotion, because that can be difficult when I'm trying to describe a woman's emotion sometimes. Sorry. But I would say she is, she is brokenhearted. And here she is brokenhearted outside the tomb. And she is weeping. And in the midst of her pain and internal torment, that is when Jesus the resurrected Christ, shows up. In Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18, it says this, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord, listen to this, is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 147.3, it says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. In Isaiah 61.1, a passage written 700 years before Jesus was born, it says that the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach, when he comes, he will be anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach the good news and to bind up the brokenhearted to bring freedom for the captives and release from dungeon for those living in darkness. Jesus came, the Messiah, to heal the brokenhearted. Now, I don't know where you are at today. Some of you, when you're listening to the skit, the song, the worship, 
Now, the, the message here right now, you would have to say, yeah, I'm brokenhearted. There is something that is so deeply wrong and hurting in my heart. Maybe it's a broken marriage. Maybe it's a lost teen or the death of someone close. Perhaps a failed business or the gossip or rejection from close friends. Or maybe unreturned romantic affections. The Bible says that Jesus is close to these people. I realize that this sermon at this point doesn't sound like a wonderful, rah-rah, hope-filled sermon. But you see, that is the message that's here. Because Jesus is close to the brokenhearted. That is the power of the resurrection. That is the hope that we have that in the midst of our brokenness, God desires to bring healing and hope. He's, if you look at verse 17 here, this, this is just amazing. It's, it's a very confusing verse, don't get me wrong. People have discussed you know, what is actually Jesus saying. Because in the King James, Jesus says, don't touch me. And, and it's probably not the best translation there. But Jesus is saying, don't keep holding on to me because I have not ascended to the Father. Instead, go tell my disciples. You see, there is something inside of Mary in the midst of her grief and brokenness that she wants to cling to Jesus for this moment and, and just relish the moment that my Savior, my God, my King is alive, the Messiah. Maybe, just maybe, he is going to set up this amazing kingdom in a way we had no thought of. This past Wednesday, you remember the thief on the cross? He was the only one who seemed to get it when you come into your kingdom Remember me. And he knew that it was going to be a spiritual kingdom. Now, I don't know what Mary is thinking here, but this sense of brokenness is being healed and she wants to cling to Jesus. But Jesus says, in essence, I'm going to paraphrase, Mary, I understand your grief and I understand you're wanting to cling to me, but there's going to be time for that. After I've ascended, but in the next 40 days, there is a mission here. And right now, I need you to go tell my disciples what you have seen. And I'm going to appear to them over these 40 days. And when I appear, I've got very clear instructions and teaching I need to give you guys. But there will come a time in your grief and in your pain and in your loss of loved ones and in your brokenness to cling to me. That's just not right now. I'm going to encourage you that if you are broken, there is only one healer of the heart, and that is the resurrected Jesus. That is the one who experienced the brokenness himself, who was sorrowful to the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane, who was hanging on the cross, despised, mocked, and ridiculed, and yet said, Father, forgive them. They, do. they have no clue what they are doing and saying right now. 
It is Jesus who, when he was laid in the tomb three days later, was raised from the dead. This is the Jesus that we are invited to cling to in our brokenness. When life seems to fall apart, when we just want to take that proverbial towel and throw it in the ring and say, I'm done with this, much as Kate was representing in her skin. I give up. I am done with this. Jesus, where are you in this? And it is to those people, just like Mary Magdalene, that Jesus wants to come to you. And I'm going to encourage you, cling to him, the only hope, the resurrected hope, and he will heal your heart. This word for touch or hold on to in the present Greek means to continue to hold on to. So they translate it cling to here. It's used over 30 times in the Greek, in the, in the Gospels. Over 30 times. And without fail, every single time, this word, and there are other words for touch that are used, but this word over, used over 30 times without fail always is used in connection with Jesus healing someone or supernaturally imparting blessing. Every time. Not to just touch an object. It is always the woman through the crowd touching the hem of Jesus' garment, and she is healed. Jesus touching the eyes of the blind, and he receives his sight, or the tongue of the mute, and they speak. It's through this conveying of miraculous healing power and restoration. Or when they came to Jesus and said, couldn't you touch or lay your hands on our children and bless them? Every occurrence of this verb is used to communicate the power and the love and the strength and the hope and the restoration and the blessing and the favor of God to his people. And this is what Mary is seeking. And so she, just like the woman who seeks to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she wants to touch and cling and hold on to Jesus. This is your hope. And this is what you are invited to do. Jesus has ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has sent the Holy Spirit, also called the Comforter. And he indwells believers. And he gives us hope. And he heals the brokenhearted. I want to share a story with you. I've, I've shared before, and, and it's the testimony of my wife that just seems so appropriate right now. When my wife was 16 years of age, a teenager, driving through traffic, it was raining after a track meet, and a car started merging into her lane, and she slammed on the brakes, and the car began to hydroplane and spin out of control. Her best friend sitting with her in the front seat, her sister in the back seat. When the car came to a jolt, and be before it began to flip, both Meredith and her best friend were catapulted through the windshield. I think my wife made a mistake some years later, the night that I was going to propose to her, we were driving down that very same road, 55 miles an hour, three lanes, and she said, here's where it all happened. And I paused, and I choked up. I lost my appetite. 
I, I was amazed. There was a 30-foot grass median strip, three lanes of traffic. She and her best friend landed on the other side of those three lanes with cars coming at 50 mile, 55 miles an hour. They eventually stopped because they saw that the car flipped and landed next to them. Meredith and her best friend were rushed to the hospital. Meredith had sustained a broken arm that they had to put a plate in. Her lung had been pierced and crushed. Glass, hundreds of pieces of glass embedded in her body. And one by one, they had to remove them. Several years later, when I was actually courting her, she had to go back into the hospital because they still needed to remove more. The parents of her best friend, though, did not get such good news. She passed away. The doctors um, were talking about her and how that she would be able to be rescued, but she would probably be in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Her pelvis, a portion of it, had been shattered into hundreds of pieces. As she lay in the hospital bed, her mother was combing the blood out of her hair. And Meredith was weeping. And in the midst of her pain, she says, Jesus spoke to her. Now, this was very new for Meredith. She had been to church all of her life. She had heard sermons. She had yet to really follow Jesus, though. There was a stubbornness and a rebellion in her heart, and she wouldn't mind me sharing that. And Jesus broke brought her to this place. Her friend had passed away. She had managed to live. And she was in so much pain. And Jesus said this, I chose pain for you. And what that spoke to Meredith was that when Jesus on Good Friday hung on the cross, he was willing to endure that pain for her and for you and for me and for all of us who are brokenhearted. And in her pain was telling her, I chose pain for you. I endured the punishment of your sin. I, I chose the lashes across my back and the crown of thorns. I chose it all for you. And as Hebrews 12 says, he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. Meredith was one of those joys set before him on the cross. She didn't remain in a wheelchair. The doctors eventually came in and said, you know, it, it seems as if the bones have moved in your pelvis and you're going to be able to walk, but you're never going to be able to bear children. They're all going to have to be cesarean. And you need to understand from my wife that was crushing. She wanted eight kids. I've never heard of a woman enduring eight cesarean sections, never. And my wife, is the doctor is telling her, you're never going to be able to have childbirth. You're going to be very limited in your children if you're even going to be able to have children. And she looked up at him with such boldness and determination, and she said, well, Jesus is going to heal me. Some years later, somehow... I'm sure she was deceived at the moment she married me. She is 
pregnant two years, year and a half later. Five months into the pregnancy, she's experiencing severe pain in her hip. The doctor says, I want to see those x-rays from the doctor that performed surgery on you in your accident. I need to see them because I'm going to tell you right now, you're probably going to need to have cesarean. He was pretty convinced that was going to need to be the case. Meredith and I went to the elders of the church we were a part of at the time in Phoenix, Arizona. James 5 says, anoint such with oil and pray for them. They be healed. And we did that. The pain in Meredith's hip completely went away. The doctor said, I'm still looking at these x-rays. I'm not convinced, but we will try to do natural childbirth. We've had five children, all of them natural childbirth. One of them born within two minutes after we arrived at the hospital. And Jesus healed my wife. Because Jesus is close to the brokenhearted. And he delights in healing the wounded. You see, that is the awesome power of our resurrected Jesus. And he invites you today to enter into this relationship with him just as my wife entered into that relationship at age 16 with Jesus. And he forever transformed her life because you see her as well as myself. Scripture says we were lost in our sin. We were sin addicts. Sin compelled us. Sin drove us. We wanted to do what was right, but we couldn't. And here we are. We were lost in our sin. And many of you, this is your testimony. We wanted to do what was right, and we couldn't. And we cried out, God, would you rescue me? Would you forgive me of your sin? I'm not worthy of your love. But nevertheless, God so loved the world that he gave. And he gave his son Jesus for you to die on the cross. He chose pain for you because of the joy set before him. And this morning, if you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't realize today that he came and he died on the cross in place of you, suffered the punishment that you deserved for your sin, for my sin, for my wife's sin. I invite you, cling to him today. Invite him to transform your life and break those chains, set you free, that you would be released from the dungeons of darkness. That's what he is called to do. The awesome God, man, come to this earth to rescue you and give you hope. And then to rise from the dead to demonstrate triumph and victory over sin and death. That you, that we, that I would be able to live with him forever. That's why he's here. Can you stand with me? The worship team, we're going to dim the lights. The worship team is going to take the stage. And I want to open the altars up to you. Maybe this morning you find that you have yet to reach out to him, to call upon the name of the Lord, that you would be saved. And I'm going to invite you to come to the altar now. Let God come and rescue you. Let him pour out his love and his forgiveness and wash away your sin forever to rescue you.
He invites you to do that. I invite you to the altar. If this morning you find yourself brokenhearted, maybe you're a believer in Jesus, and yet there's a hurt, a deep wound. Maybe you've experienced rejection. Maybe you've wandered from him, and right now your heart is broken. He came for you. I invite you to the altar and allow Jesus to heal your broken heart. Let's worship.